Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 22. We're making our way sort of to the home stretch of the book of Acts, some sections of the book that are more narrative, different parts of Paul's journey as he's now pretty much going to be a prisoner for the, for the rest of what we see uh, in the book of Acts, even though, you know, in Caesarea, he's going to have a little bit of freedom for people to come and visit him and whatnot, but this is, there's a, there's a notable change that's happening in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul as we have seen already in Acts chapter 22 and even beginning in Acts chapter 21 where he's arrested. But going to finish chapter 22 today, make it into chapter 23. And this morning we're, uh, as we continue on the book of Acts, we're going to be looking at a study I've titled A Needed Meeting with Jesus. A Needed Meeting with Jesus. And and even in me kind of landing on that title, you know, maybe there are some this morning where you, ha- you are in need of a meeting with Jesus. You're, you're in need of a touch from Jesus. You're in need of comfort, of hope, of endurance, maybe, of just the Lord speaking something to you where you're at and... That was Paul in our text that we'll look at this morning. And, and, and we'll see this morning more and more that we are not unlike the Apostle Paul. Because I think we can get these ideas, or at least I can. When I read some of the things that Paul went through and he experienced, and it's like he just seems like this superhuman, super saint, nothing affected him sort of guy. That at times I have a hard time connecting with on that level because I, I am affected by things. You know, people move away, and I'm like heartbroken, and you know, th- things happen. There's sickness. There's something, something tragedy happens, and it's like things are hard. And yet, we're going to see this morning that that Paul was very much like us, and this needed meeting that Paul had with Jesus. Maybe we're in that same place today. And so, our main text is Acts 22 starting in verse 22, and we're going to be studying all the way through chapter 23, verse 11. As we consider some of the context, I want to, I want us to first actually read the last verse of our passage of Scripture that we're going to be studying today. Look at Acts chapter 23, verse 11 with me. We're going to begin with the ending, if you will. Acts 23, verse 11, it says, But the following night the Lord stood by him, speaking of Paul, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Jesus stood by Paul. He spoke these words to Paul, telling him to be of good cheer. You ever had someone, when you're bummed out, tell you, cheer up? How effective was it in the moment? Did you feel cared for maybe? Maybe you actually felt like a little disrespected. Like, instead of telling me, cheer up, why don't you come alongside me and, and you know, cry with me or, you know, you know, whatever. But this was not a callous sort of thing for Jesus to say. This wasn't a careless sort of thing for Jesus to say. When Jesus tells somebody, be of good cheer, and we see him at different points, even in the gospel accounts, tell somebody, tell a group of people, even his disciples, like when he was walking on the water in the middle middle of the night and they freaked out because they thought they were seeing a ghost, Jesus told them, be of good cheer. He wasn't going like, get over yourself. He wasn't saying like, stop being fearful. He's going, in me telling you to take courage, to be a to, to be courageous, I'm speaking something to you that I'm able to do in you. This isn't a nice, like, greeting card sort of moment. Like, Jesus is able to bring the cheer, bring the encouragement, bring the confidence that's lacking at times in our lives. And the reason Jesus stood by Paul and spoke these things to Paul 
was because Paul was dealing with discouragement. He was dealing with a lack of courage. And we're going to look at this some more towards the end of our study. But it's important for us to understand that though Paul knew, as we see him speak to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, that, that chains and tribulations awaited him in Jerusalem, he was not immune to experiencing discouragement when he faced hard things, opposition, rejection, suffering, trials, and he needed encouragement just like we do. Which is important as we consider what Paul has gone through so far in his time in Jerusalem. How the Jewish believers in Jerusalem had believed false things about him. We saw that in Acts chapter 21. How the unbelieving Jews at the temple shouted false accusations against him. Created a mob that grabbed him and, and beat him and were going to kill him. We saw this also in chapter 21. How the Roman commander thought he was this... Egyptian imposter who had led a, you know, 4,000 assassins into the wilderness. And as we saw two weeks ago, how the unbelieving crowd that he had just had the opportunity to preach to, sharing his testimony, wanting to share the gospel message, how he had his message cut short, how the people rejected him and cried out for him to be killed, we need to see that these things did affect Paul deeply. Paul was not immune to discouragement and heartache. He definitely was not exempt from suffering and trials and opposition and difficulty. But what an encouragement to Paul and an encouragement for us today that, that Jesus met with Paul the way that he did and spoke the things that he did. And I, I pray we see in our study this morning that God wants to meet us in our individual lives with whatever it is we're going through, that we would continue to be people of hope, that we would see that Jesus is standing with us and that we would find our encouragement in Jesus even when stuff is still hard. And now it's on the heels of Paul's defense, his testimony to the crowds surrounding the Antonia Fortress. Remember, Paul was on those top steps before getting into the barracks of the fortress. He had just been addressing the crowd in the Hebrew language with their rejection of him because he shared how Jesus commissioned him to go to the Gentiles. It's all... With all that in mind, that we're now picking up our account in verse 22, which was our last verse in our last study in Acts. Acts 22, verse 22, it says, And they listened to him until this word, this word being Gentiles, <laughs> you know, depart, I'm going to send you far from here to the Gentiles. They couldn't handle it anymore. They listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore, or that could literally mean threw off their clothes and threw dust in the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman? And uncondemned, when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. As we consider two weeks ago when we ended our study in verse 22, Paul's message was incomplete because the crowd had cut him off at the mention of God sending him to the Gentiles. No doubt Paul had desired, had planned 
to explicitly share the gospel, to present Jesus crucified and resurrected and ascended, to to present Jesus in a way where the people would know without a doubt what their, you know, what their response should be. And yet, as soon as he gets to this part about God commissioning him to go to the Gentiles, that was it. There was no more sharing. Share time was over for Paul. And this led the crowd to call for Paul's death, shouting that he was not fit to live anymore. And and demonstrating in a very sort of Jewish way, demonstrating their outrage by throwing their, their outer cloaks off and throwing dust into the air. Which is kind of a bizarre thing for us, but you know, they were a very demonstrative sort of people. And this was just, a, it was a physical, outward sort of way to go, we are serious about how angry we are. We don't, you know, if we throw dust up in the air, um, you know, usually that's not why. We're not thinking anything. None of us throw dust in the air. I don't know, I even know why I said that. But we definitely wouldn't throw it out of anger. But anyways... This caused the Roman commander to decide, you know what, it, I, I got to step in. I got to do something about this situation. He orders Paul to be brought into the barracks to be examined under scourging so that he could learn why the crowds were so vehemently against Paul. And from verse 25, we see that as they got Paul ready for that scourging, which was what Jesus endured before going to the cross, it was no ordinary sort of whipping it was a means of torture. It was a means to get somebody to talk, to confess, even if they didn't do anything wrong. You would confess something. It was so horrific of a torture. You would confess to get it to stop. Maybe confessing to things that you didn't even do. Here they're stretching Paul out. They're binding him with straps to a wooden post to get him in the right position for the scourging, probably spacing him out a little bit so that that short scourge could wrap around Paul's torso and legs. And it's at that moment that Paul speaks to the centurion that was near him and, and asks, look, hey, can I, can I ask you something really quick? Is it lawful? Is it legal? For you to scourge a man who's a Roman citizen and has not been condemned of anything. And we see as this plays out, clearly this freaked out the centurion. It freaked out the commander. The commander goes to Paul. He has this conversation. Are you really a Roman citizen? Paul's like, yeah, yeah, I am. And, and the interesting thing here is this commander confesses something to Paul. He says, I'm a citizen because I obtained it with a large sum. Now, I, I want us to understand that culturally in that day, you couldn't just buy a citizenship. Like, this isn't what's being presented to us here. It's not that this commander just, he was a wealthy guy. One of the steps to getting citizenship is you went and, you know, you put your money down. I'm going to pay for this citizenship. There, there was really three ways to become a Roman citizen. You could have it bestowed upon you as an honor. Maybe you did something that was really great in the eyes of the, of the emperor. And so he'd go, hey, you know what? We're going to give you Roman citizenship. You're a great person. We're going to make you a citizen. A another way was to be born a citizen. You, your parents... You were Roman by birth. You grew up in an area that maybe was a, a free city within the Roman Empire. And so you grew up somewhere. You were born into it. And this is where Paul was at. The third way was to bribe a corrupt Roman official to do something, to concoct some sort of plan, to, to give something that may have been helpful to somebody else in order to gain the papers to say you were a citizen. And this is where this Roman commander was at. This large sum is his way of going, I had to bribe my way into it. It, it took a lot. There was a huge sacrifice. I had to 
I had to really jump through the hoops to, to obtain this, to acquire this citizenship for myself. And obviously, he worked his way up into the ranks. He joined the Roman military. He probably started as a foot soldier, made his way probably through being a centurion, uh, having a hundred soldiers underneath him, and then later became this Roman tribune, a, a commander who was over a huge cohort of soldiers and centurions. And this guy's tripping out like, hey, I don't know how you got your thing, but like, I, it was hard for me. Paul did not look like much at this point in time, right? He had just gotten the snot beat out of him by the crowd. They were going to kill him. And I'm sure this Roman commander is looking at him, and he probably looks pathetic. I'm sure he's bleeding and battered and bruised. And, and the last thing this guy, Paul, looked like was this Roman citizen. And yet, Paul's going, that's, that's me. And once this became really clear, because you didn't just say that you were a citizen without being able to back it up. Because if you in that day said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, when you were going to be maybe uh, have charges pressed against you or someone was going to try to torture you like Paul, if you couldn't back it up, if you can present your papers, your, your proof of citizenship, they would kill you. It was punishable by death. So... Once the Roman commander sees, hey, gosh, this guy was born a citizen. He's, he's, he's a full-blown citizen of Rome. He, he backs off. They, they all distance themselves, themselves from Paul. The commander becomes afraid because he had bound Paul. He had gotten him ready for the scourging even though he hadn't been condemned. And this was something that could have gotten the commander in big trouble. Now, as we see Paul claim his Roman citizenship here, we, we have to understand that he didn't pull the I'm a Roman citizen card anytime he wanted to escape suffering or, or take advantage of his, his rights. Because in Acts chapter 16, he didn't voice the fact that he was a Roman citizen until he had been beaten and imprisoned by the Roman officials in Philippi, if you guys remem remember that account. In hindsight, we go, Paul, why didn't you start with that? Like when the crowd was against you, when the, the Romans started beating you, when they threw you into the inner prison, the dungeon, where you were in there all night praising God, like you could have saved yourself some trouble, Paul. How come you didn't pull the card earlier? And there were other times in Paul's ministry that he was beaten with rods, Paul talks about, and whipped, that he obviously did not use his Roman citizenship to get out of. But, but this scourging was different than being beaten with rods or, or whipped with a normal sort of whip. If this scourging did not kill a person, which it did at times, it would often leave the person being scourged crippled for the rest of their lives. So we see that this was less a move of Paul avoiding suffering and, and more a move of Paul seeking to maintain his ability to carry out the commission, the calling that God had placed upon his life to travel, to bring the message of the gospel to Gentiles and kings and the Jewish people. And, and Paul called upon his national citizenship and his rights as a Roman citizen in order to further the work of the gospel and have greater opportunity to point people to Jesus. But, but while we see Paul avoiding this scourging, we're going to find Paul now facing a new situation in the following verses. But let's read verse 30. It says, the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. You know, in order for the Roman commander to determine why Paul was being accused by the Jews the next day, which means Paul stayed in custody that night in the barracks, this commander commanded the chief priests, all their council, the entire Sanhedrin to come and, and brings Paul down to have this time to kind of hash things out, figure out what's going on. 
And Paul went from having an opportunity to preach to the large unbelieving crowd of Jews at the temple, although that didn't end well, no one got saved from his preaching, to, to now getting an opportunity to speak to the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling religious body that set the religious tone for the nation of Israel. And we see this unfold now in Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 10, but let's read verses 1 through 3. Luke recording for us in verse 1 of chapter 23. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Paul's opening statement was respectful addressing them as men and brethren, seeking to let them know that his conscience was clear before them and how he had been living. But before he could continue addressing the council, he was struck on the mouth, punched in the face at the command of the high priest. Now, we might be a bit surprised by Paul's response in verse 3 after he was struck where he responded, God will strike you. You whitewashed wall. For you said to judge me according to the law, and you do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? This whitewashed wall was something that Jesus called the Pharisees in his earthly ministry. They would whitewash areas that behind that area was a defiled area. An area of death, they would whitewash the walls of tombs to make it look nicer. But inside was dead people's carcasses. Paul's saying, as Jesus would point out about the religious leaders in his day, in his ministry, that these people were corrupt. You look all great on the outside, but there's corruption behind it. There's hypocrisy behind that. There's that the righteous facade is only righteous outwardly, but not inwardly. Now, if we were to call somebody a whitewashed wall, they'd be like, okay. Somebody does something, somebody cuts you off on the freeway, you whitewashed wall! You'd be like, oh, cool. Like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> but when we when we know sort of the 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 cultural sort of expression the understanding behind it this was this this would have been offensive to these religious leaders just like it was offensive to the religious leaders in Jesus's earthly ministry oftentimes after Jesus would have those sorts of conversations and he would call the religious leaders out the way that he did they, we'd find that they were plotting his death how can we get rid of this guy Now, Paul was calling out the unjust and unlawful decision to have him struck without knowing who gave the command for him to be struck. Not, not that it made it less unjust or just or, or less un, unlawful, but while we wouldn't excuse a, a fleshly sort of response if this was one, if that was us in Paul's shoes, we might respond the same way as none of us are ever okay with someone treating us unjustly or unfairly. We, we, it bothers us. There's something inwardly that longs for justice. And when we feel like and there's an unjust situation, we want to react. We want to respond. We want to defend ourselves. We maybe want to lash out even if we're being honest with ourselves. But, but regardless of where Paul was at and what he said, whether, whether this was just a righteous anger or, or, or it was a fleshly reaction, Paul was human. Notice that he res, he's, he's going to respond humbly 
once he learns that it was the high priest who was behind the order. So look at verses 4 and 5 now. It says, And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. We have to remember that about 20 years have passed since Paul was or since Paul had been directly involved in the Jewish religious establishment as a Pharisee. So, so it's possible that he didn't recognize Ananias 20 years later. I mean, a person can look differently, especially when they're in the later years of their life. 20 years can cause someone to change some, look a little bit different. It's also possible that Ananias was not the high priest when Paul was last in the loop with what was going on with the Sanhedrin, and he just didn't know that Ananias was the high priest at this time. But it's also possible, as some scholars believe, that, that Paul had eye issues due to probably contracting malaria in the past. We've actually spoke about this when Paul was first going into Pisidian Antioch, how Paul had this ailment uh, that very likely could have been contracted in the, in the marshlands there of where they landed. It's possible that his eyesight was not great. At one point, I think it's in the book of Galatians, Paul says, look, at, look with what large letters I have written to you. And some scholars believe that that was a reference to Paul just, he couldn't see well. He's like writing all big. So it's possible if that was the case, his eyesight's not great, he couldn't see well enough to, to make out who the man was that ordered him to be struck. Regardless, as soon as Paul heard that it was the high priest who ordered him to be struck, he took ownership for his actions. He humbled himself, even though they were in the wrong for striking him unjustly. And Paul made it clear that he agreed with Mosaic law, he quoted Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, that he was not to speak evil of a ruler of the people. But, but I, I think it's safe to say that this was not going how Paul hoped it would go. And, and Paul knew some other course of action was needed or, or it was going to end very badly for him. And so let's continue reading verses 6 through 10 as we see Paul now change his approach to the council. Verse 6, but when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now, I don't believe Paul's intention was merely to divide and cause strife between these two groups within the Sanhedrin. Thinking, you know, that if they started fighting each other, that he would gain an out, although it did play out that way. No, and I think there was something deeper going on in what Paul brought up. Again, this is the ruling religious council for the Jewish people. These were the people who were supposed to be leading the people toward God, teaching the people about God, and, and upholding the law of God above everything else. But the high priest, the, the man in charge of the council, this was the man who on the Day of Atonement was the only one in all of the nation of Israel, among all the priests who would get to go in to the most holy place in the temple one time a year. This was the guy 
This is the guy who, for all intents and purposes, would be the, the closest to God in the eyes of the people. He was the man who was to represent God to the people and the people to God. But the high priest, Ananias, was corrupt. And we don't just know this because Paul called him a whitewashed wall. Paul saying, look, there's some corruption that exists. You're a hi there's hypocrisy. There's unrighteousness that exists. According to the historian Josephus, writing about this high priest Ananias, he wrote that Ananias was violent and greedy, writing that, even, that he even took away the tithes that belonged to the other priests by violence and that he arranged for people to be assassinated. This high priest was like a mafia leader of the time. Like, this isn't a good guy. And he's clearly not a good guy just by, like, Paul just says, like, hey, men and brethren, I've lived in good conscience. Punch that guy in the face. Like, nobody in their right mind would come away from that statement and think, we should really jack this guy up. Like, there was something going on in Ananias' life that was clearly in the wrong. There was some ungodliness that existed in Ananias. But, but added to that, we have then within the Sanhedrin, this ruling religious council, this group known as the Sadducees, which, you know, maybe if you've heard the old saying, it's because they were sad, you see. No, not really. Anyway, they were really sad. But this group of Sadducees were, were a group within the ruling religious council who did not believe in the supernatural. They were anti-supernatural. They didn't believe in a resurrection didn't believe in angels, didn't believe that people had a spirit. These leaders within this council were basically the liberal theologians of their day. But then there's this other group known as the Pharisees, who we know from the gospel accounts were extremely self-righteous who had elevated their own man-made traditions to be on the same level and just as authoritative as Scripture itself. These are men who rejected Jesus in his public earthly ministry. But they were basically the Bible believers of their day. Where the Sadducees would have been the liberals these people were extremely conservative. They believed that God's word was God's word. And they really did try to hold fast to it. In fact, the reason the Pharisees even assembled as a group in the first place was because there was a desire to return to the authority of Scripture in the day that the Pharisee group first started. Paul's being faced with a group of men who needed to be confronted with truth. These men who were supposed to be leading the people were actually keeping the people of Israel from entering into the kingdom of God by their own hypocrisy and corruption and their willful rejection of Jesus. And so Paul utilizes his upbringing and background as a Pharisee who held tightly to the word of God to expose the deeper issue, an issue that was not political but was spiritual and theological. Paul says, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. That that hope and resurrection ultimately being connected to Jesus, the resurrected Savior, Messiah, King, who Paul's hope was inseparably sourced in and anchored to. There is no resurrection of the just and the unjust if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead. You and I wouldn't experience a resurrection without his resurrection. It's because he rose that we also will be raised one day. 
And if that hope that Paul was being judged for brought about division and chaos within that council, it was worth it in Paul's eyes if it got some of these people thinking about what they had believed in and where their hope was ultimately that they would be confronted with the reality of their own misplaced hopes and what was in store for them eternally. And as we see in verses 7 through 9, this created a dissension. And the assembly of the council was divided with the, the scribes, the, the lawyers, the, the, the legalists of the party actually protesting in favor of Paul, saying, we, if we find no evil in this man, if, if a spirit of an angel has spoken to him, hey, we don't want to be the ones who are fighting against God. This is like a real drastic sort of turnaround here. But this situation also shows us that Paul had discernment to see that these religious leaders were not going to receive the gospel. Perceive that the group was divided between Pharisees and Sadducees, which caused Paul to speak up about an issue that he clearly believed in, but, but knew was a point of contention between these groups within this council. And, and look at how this played out in verse 10. Luke goes on to record for us. He says, now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. This resulted in a big fight. It's a big fight. I already know that the Jewish people could be very demonstrative with their emotions, throwing off their cloaks, throwing dust into the air. But, man, when these people fought, they fought. Like, this is a real fight going down. Like, this great dissension was, was so bad that the Roman commander was afraid that Paul was actually going to be pulled to pieces, that they'd pull his arms out of his sockets and, 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 and rip off parts of his body. Like, it was really, really bad. And again, these are the religious people. These are the godly people of the day, supposedly. These are the people who were making sure that the nation of Israel was following after the Lord. And this is anything but godly. This is like the craziest thing that you could ever think to see in like a church setting. You, you know, I think nowadays we see crazy things. People do crazy things, you know, and, and more and more with social media and people get exposed with things that they're doing and, and we, we find corruption existing in all kinds of areas that we didn't even know that it would have existed. But it was really bad. Commander comes and the soldiers, they come and they take Paul by force. They bring him back to the barracks of the Antonia Fortress there. But, but this didn't leave Paul feeling encouraged or joyful or, or confident. He didn't rejoice that he divided the Sanhedrin and caused this great dissension. No, no none of that. I believe this situation actually drove Paul to greater discouragement and sadness because ultimately what Paul wanted was for the Sanhedrin to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, just like that was his desire in preaching to that crowd at the temple the day before, wanting so desperately for these people who were separated from God because of their sin, to be reconciled to God, to have their sins forgiven if they would just repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And I, and I have to wonder if Paul in some ways here after this felt like he failed. I mean, there's no seeming success in any of these things. He comes to bring the gift to Jerusalem, the financial gift. We don't see him being thanked for it. It could have happened, but Luke doesn't record that for us. The Jewish believers had believed false rumors about Paul. So Paul's putting himself out there. He's doing more than he really needed to do. 
going and taking that vow and paying for these other guys to have this purification. And, and, and then that didn't even work out well. He's, in, he's doing all the right things. He's, he's trying to, to, to bring unity to these groups of people. He's trying to make sure that the Jewish believers knew that he wasn't against the law of Moses. And, he, and, and, and he's misunderstood and he's misjudged. And then he gets this opportunity to preach to this whole multitude of unbelieving Jews, and, and they cut him off. He doesn't even get to finish preaching the gospel. No one gets saved. Now he's before the Sanhedrin. He's trying to be respectful. He gets punched in the face. This huge fight erupts. Like, nothing was working out right. I don't know that when Paul was hearing from the Spirit of God that chains and tribulations awaited him, that that also meant that any attempts to preach the gospel, any attempts to minister in the name of Jesus in Jerusalem, was just going to be a huge downer. I mean, okay, chains and tribulations, but people are going to get saved. I'm sure that was Paul's hope. I'm sure that he had some sort of hopeful expectation that, okay, I'm in chains, but man, like, now the gospel's really going to go out. All these people are going to get saved in this crowd. All the Sanhedrin is going to get saved. Radical revival is going to happen in the city of Jerusalem. None of that happened. You wonder if Paul is second-guessing, like, how he rebuked the high priest. Like, oh, shoot, I shouldn't have said that. Like, why did I call him a whitewashed wall? Like, <laughs> could I have handled that differently? Like, Paul's a human. I'm sure all the human emotions are going through just like they would with us. When we say something and then it doesn't work out well, don't we do the same thing? Oh, man, why did I say it like that? Why did I have to say that? Oh, I should have just been quiet. Or, or I should have said this. Or I shouldn't have said this. And we, we play all those things out in our heads until we're just exhausted mentally and emotionally. Paul's... You know, it's like we don't know where Paul is out here exactly. But I'm sure that he had some unmet expectations. I'm sure that his hopes had been dashed at the very least. That at least one person would put their faith in Jesus. He must have been dealing with disappointment and discouragement. Paul did not return to those barracks doing a maniacal laugh like the Muppet movie, like maniacal laugh, maniacal laugh. But anyways, if you've not seen the Muppet movie, then you don't know what I'm talking about. But those of you with kids are like, I know. You know, he wasn't returning to the barracks like, oh, man, I really got those people. I divided everybody. Now they hate each other again. They already hated each other, but now they really, really hate each other. He's not bragging about how he made them look like fools. No, Paul returned to those barracks extremely discouraged and in desperate need of being ministered to by the Lord. But I love what we read in this Next verse of our account, which we began our time with. Acts 23, verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. <clears throat> you know... It's interesting the kinds of things that happen at night, right? Like when you're, when the days passed, you've had a whole day of thinking about something and then you are finally trying to go to sleep, maybe trying to get some sleep and, and your, your mind doesn't go to sleep right away and you're playing out all the things of the day, all the things that have happened, all the what ifs, all the whys, that this could have been one of the darkest points for the Apostle Paul in his time in Jerusalem so far. And yet this is the moment that Jesus shows up. 
the, the following night, after all that had taken place, Jesus stood by Paul. We don't know if this was Jesus physically was there or if this is a vision. But Jesus stood by Paul. He spoke things to Paul that he needed to hear from the Lord in that moment. He said, be of good cheer. Have courage. Be courageous or confident. Which just again reinforces that Paul at this moment was dealing with discouragement. He was lacking courage. He was lacking confidence. Paul needed cheering up. Things hadn't worked out the way that he had hoped it would. And he needed encouragement just like we do so often. And the Lord stood by Paul and was seeking to encourage him. But, but can I remind us today as Christians that the Lord is standing with us, that he's wanting to encourage us too as we go through hardship and disappointment and suffering and trials because he is. But, but I want us to see that, that Jesus wasn't there to get Paul out of his captivity. He wasn't helping Paul to escape from his problems. He was there to walk with Paul, to stand with Paul in what he was going through and would continue to go through in heading to Rome. You know, oftentimes we just want the Lord to deliver us. Lord, just deliver me out of this thing. Just get me out of the mess that I'm in. Lord, get me out of the discouragement. Get me out of the trial. And that's not a bad thing to ask. It's not wrong for us to want a trial to end, for difficulty to stop. But, but what happens sometimes when the difficulty doesn't stop, when the trial prolongs, when the situation delays, our, our discouragement can get elevated. Because what we are hoping is God's just going to make it all stop. He's going to make it all go away. But sometimes what, what the Lord wants to do is he just wants to stand there right with us. We're in the fire. We're in the flood. He just wants to be right there beside us, upholding us, giving us what we need to keep standing, to keep going. You know, are we okay with the Lord not ending the thing that we want him to end if he's saying, I'll be there, I'll be with you. I, I, I'll encourage you, I'll, I'll strengthen you, I'll comfort you, I'll be your hope. Notice that Jesus didn't say, be of good cheer, Paul, because everything's going to get better now. It's going to be so much smoother. People are going to stop hating you and trying to kill you. I'm sure that's what Paul would have liked to hear. If I was him, that's what I wanted to hear, right? Be of good cheer. Your life's all going to be perfect. Cool, Lord, thanks. It's going to be great. No, the thing that was getting Paul into trouble, being a witness to Jesus, was the thing Jesus said Paul must also do in Rome. Paul, I'm going to keep putting you in positions and situations where it's going to be hard where people aren't going to accept you, they're going to reject you, they're going to reject the gospel message that you're preaching. Jesus wasn't promising Paul ease, comfort, that people were going to like him. No, he was actually promising Paul continued difficulty. But that in the difficulty, he would be with Paul. And I've got to ask us as disciples of Jesus who have been saved by the grace of Jesus, is the, is the promised presence of Jesus enough for us? Is the, is the promised presence of Jesus enough for us? Is it enough to know that he's with us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us? 
Is it enough for us to know that he's present in our daily lives, that he has a plan for our lives, that he wants to use our lives to further his kingdom? Is it enough for us to know that he's not removed or disconnected or ignorant of the difficulties and opposition and suffering and trials that we go through, but that he's with us in the midst of those things? You know, when David in Psalm 23 wrote about the Lord being a shepherd, he wrote about that valley of the shadow of death. The thing that brought him comfort was knowing that the shepherd was with him in the valley. That the the shepherd was able to use his rod and his staff to bring comfort in the valley. We have to remember that God knows how to meet us in the valleys. He knows how to meet us in our struggles. He knows how to meet us in our trials and suffering and difficulty. And the things that we're facing that just seem like insurmountable sorts of things. We don't know how they're going to work out. We don't know how we're going to get through it. And yet our shepherd is there. Jesus is there with us. The shadow of death is not greater than the shepherd who is able to comfort, who is able to see us through those things because the trials are not going to last forever. Even if the trial that we experience lasts till the day that we go home to be with Jesus, there is going to be an end. The things that we experience here, Paul said, they're light and momentary afflictions. They don't feel very light at times. Sometimes they feel really heavy. Sometimes they feel overwhelming. We just feel afflicted. We feel discouraged. We feel depressed. We we don't know what's going on. We don't know how to process things. Paul says they're working for us in eternal weight of glory. God's doing something. He has a purpose. He's still good. He's still faithful. He's still with us. And he's standing. He's standing with us even now. But but I want us to notice something else in what Jesus said to Paul here. Jesus looked back to what Paul had done in Jerusalem. He took note that Paul testified for him in Jerusalem. He didn't say, look, Paul, as you testified for me in Jerusalem, and you did a pretty bad job. Paul, you failed. Paul, why did you say that to the high priest? Paul, you misrepresented me. He didn't say any of that. He didn't even say, Paul, you're outside of my will. You were never supposed to go to Jerusalem in the first place. Don't you remember how I told all those people to tell you that chains and tribulations awaited you? Jesus doesn't even say that. He just goes, good job, man. You were faithful. You testified for me in Jerusalem. He doesn't go, you know what? You could, at least one person could have got saved, Paul. He doesn't put that on Paul. The work of the salva- work of salvation belongs to the Lord. Only the Lord can save, not you and me. We're just to be faithful with the opportunity. Paul was faithful with the opportunities that Jesus gave him. He testified. He did what he was supposed to do, and Paul and Jesus goes, "You did it. You testified for me in Jerusalem. I saw that, Paul. I saw how you stood and you." You, you proclaimed me. But Jesus also looked forward and said that Paul was going to testify about him in Rome. Jesus here is giving Paul confidence that he was going to get Paul to Rome. At the very least, Paul could have certainty that nothing was going to prevent him from getting to Rome 
where he was going to testify about Jesus, no matter how many obstacles he faced or how many people came against him or how many crises came about. Because understand, even in our study next week, 40 assassins are going to try and kill Paul. Jesus knows that. He's like, be of good cheer. But he doesn't tell Paul, 40 assassins are about to take this vow. They're not going to eat or drink anything until they kill you, Paul. I mean, Paul's already discouraged. Could you imagine how that could have just like completely deflated him? Like, I give up. He didn't tell him like, Paul, you're going to get shipwrecked, man. A viper's going to bite you on the hand. He doesn't tell him, you know what, the people are going to forget about you. They're going to leave you in prison. They're going to want a bribe from the Jews. They're going to let you rot there for two years. He didn't tell him any of that. Just be of good cheer. We should be thankful that God doesn't give us all the steps. He doesn't give us all the things. It, it would mess us up in all kinds of ways if we knew all the things that we were going to face between now and tomorrow. Now and next month, now and a year from now, now and 10 years from now. In the moment, Jesus is standing right now. Jesus is standing with us and he's telling us, be of good cheer. I'm with you. I've got you. I'm still good. You could still trust me. Jesus was not done with Paul. He's not done with us. You know, I'm sure all of us who have been saved by Jesus here can testify. Even if we've only walked with Jesus for a short amount of time, we could testify how in hard times Jesus has stood with us. How Jesus has faithfully sought to encourage and strengthen and comfort and minister to us in moments where we just needed him. We needed a meeting with Jesus just like Paul did. And just like Paul had the hope and resurrection of the dead, you and I are able to be a people of hope because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Look, if we had a dead Savior, we would have no hope. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He's alive. He's seated at the right hand of the Father even now. And he is going to come again one day. Our living Savior has given us, given us a living hope, and he has encouragement, comfort, strength, endurance, grace for us today and the days to come. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. Look, guys, in closing, you know, I, I really do pray we've seen in this study that God wants to meet us in our individual lives with whatever it is we're going through. That he wants to make us a people of hope. Not a people who are hopeless, no, not a people who look around and we're just so overwhelmed by everything going on in this world that we just, we, we, don't, we don't even have any sort of hopeful expectation at all for this life, yet alone for the life to come. That we would be people who see that Jesus is standing with us, that we would find our encouragement in Jesus even when things are hard. Encourage you today. The Lord wants to meet with you. He wants to meet with you just like he met with Paul. He wants to stand with you just like he stood with Paul. He wants to encourage you just like he did with Paul. He wants to maybe even recommission you as he recommissioned Paul. Let's trust him today. Let's keep our eyes focused on Jesus today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that Paul was a guy just like us, dealt with discouragement, needed to be ministered to, Needed you, Lord Jesus, showing up in his circumstances. Needed you speaking words to him, Lord, that his heart needed to hear. Lord, that's us so many times. 
that might even be us today for some. But Lord, we're just in need of a meeting with you. Lord, we're in need of a touch by you. Lord, in need of a fresh word from you, something that you would speak to our hearts. And maybe this morning this message was that thing. Maybe this morning this message was part of that meeting that you wanted to meet with them. To remind them that you are standing with them. You're with them, Lord. That you're going to strengthen them and, and give them endurance and grace for what's to come, Lord, or what they're going through even now. And Lord, I pray that as we, God, see and, and filter, Lord, the things that we go through, Lord, the opportunities that we get, God, that sometimes don't work out the way that we hope that they would, just like Paul. Lord, we, we, we share the gospel with somebody and they just, they don't want anything to do with it. They don't want anything to do with you. Then maybe you don't even want anything to do with us. Lord, maybe at times we just feel rejected, Lord. We feel like we say the wrong thing, even. Maybe sometimes we feel like a failure. But Lord, will we be reminded that today, Lord, that you just want us to be faithful? Just to be faithful. Lord, as we consider that, Jesus, you stand with us, Lord, help us to stand. Help us to stand strong in the grace of Jesus. Lord, help us to stand and to withstand the evil one. Lord, who wants to come against us and, and cripple us with discouragement and condemnation, lies, the things of our past. Lord God, protect us from the devil and his demons. Lord God, protect the area of our mind. Lord, minister to us in our discouragements, our unmet expectations, Lord, our, our dashed hopes even. Lord, help us to keep trusting you. Lord, help us to keep looking to you. Lord, help us to keep being faithful to you to make our lives all about Jesus, Lord, to keep testifying about you, Lord, no matter if people receive us or not, receive you or not. And Lord, would you be glorified in and through our lives. God, in the, in the good times and the bad, Lord, in the valley of the shadow of death and Lord, also on the mountaintops. God, meet your people today. And Lord, if there's anybody here who has joined us online who's never just put their faith in you, they never received your free gift of salvation, they don't have that confidence to know, Lord, that, that, Lord, that resurrection of, of the dead, the just and the unjust one day, Lord, that, that they can know with confidence that, Lord, they'll be with you. God, I pray for them right now. That even now, if that's anybody that, that, that you're going, look, like, I, I just, I, I've never put my faith in Jesus. I've never repented of my sin. I, I don't have that confidence that my sins have been forgiven. That, I, that I'm saved. I'm actually saved by the grace of Jesus. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. I just encourage you, if that's you, even now, that you would just look to Jesus in faith. That you would say in your own heart, just, Jesus, forgive me. I'm a sinner, and I need your salvation. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me. Jesus, I believe that you rose from the grave. Jesus, I, I turn away. I repent of my sin. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Save me. Seal me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the promise and hope of heaven. Jesus, I surrender my life to you. And Jesus, I put my trust in you. Be my Savior. Be my God. And I just encourage you as you do that, the Bible says if we, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, if we believe in our heart that God's raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. But maybe for some others today, you're just in need of that touch from the Lord. You're in need of that encouragement. Lord, I pray for those who are in that place that, Lord, 
you would overwhelm them, God, with your presence. Lord, that if they're overwhelmed by their circumstances, they're overwhelmed by their, by their situation, God, that you would, you would remove, Lord, that overwhelming sort of feeling. And, and Lord, in turn, God, that, God, you would just let them know that you're with them. Lord, that you've got them. That you're, you're going to walk with them. Lord, you're never going to leave or forsake them. Lord, that you've got their back. Lord, that you are working all things together for their good and your glory. Lord, that you have a plan, that you've not forgotten them. God, that you see what they're going through, Lord, and you care. And God, would you strengthen them today, Lord. Encourage them today, Lord. Comfort them today. God, bring healing and hope. God, we commit them to you this morning. Lord, as we sing these songs of praise now, Lord, as we take the communion elements and remember, Jesus, your body that was broken, your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, Jesus, would you be near? Would you be enthroned in our praises? Lord, would you pour out your spirit? God, would you meet with us afresh? We thank you, Father. We want to glorify you with these songs of praise now. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.